Blog Talk Radio. Radio. I'm the founder of Alzheimer's Speaks and your host today, and I'm thrilled to be here. We're going to have a, a great show. Um, we have two two different topics we're going to be talking about. One is uh, personalized puzzles to engage those with dementia, and uh, and we're going to be speaking to uh, some people who have dealt with dementia, who have used the puzzles, who have created this concept. Um, which is really cool. And then the second half of the show, we're going to be talking um, with the Alzheimer's team, uh, one of their doctors there, about some clinical trials, which is always great, great information to hear. So hopefully you can stay with us the whole two hours. If by chance you can't, don't worry. Uh, It is a podcast, and you can always go back and listen to it later. And please don't forget to share it with others. Um, For those of you that are new to the show, Alzheimer's Speaks is an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. We're all about connecting the dots and and getting people a a little bit more at ease with this disease. Um, We believe that by joining forces and sharing knowledge and just having everyday conversations about life with dementia, that we can actually remove the stigmas attached to memory loss and help those living and dealing with this disease continue to live purpose-filled lives. Together, we can help everybody understand the true needs and kind of tricks of the trade um, when dealing with dementia. At our core, Alzheimer's Speaks believes that collaboratively we are going to win this battle. And um, I know that we are having a huge impact because we were honored to be named the number one influencer online for Alzheimer's, according to ShareCare, which is the largest health and wellness uh, site in the world, and Dr. Oz. And I, I have to tell you that would not have happened without our listeners. You guys have been absolutely fabulous in terms of sharing the information that we give you. Um, you share it with you know your troops and your tribes um, all around the world, from those that are dealing with uh, uh, with Twitter. You might be throwing it out to your tribes that way. Others might be um, shooting it out to their Facebook friends. Others might be sending it over to their colleagues on LinkedIn and all the other different social media platforms there are. It makes absolutely no difference um, where you share it. But the power of the impact, um, please don't don't ever... Um, don't ever underestimate that. There are so many people touched by this disease. In fact, every four seconds, somebody in the world is diagnosed with dementia. And if you look at your own circle of friends, you would be shocked because this is a disease we still don't talk about. 
And so the more information we can get out to people, the more comfortable they're going to feel grabbing it when they need it. Now, another thing that I want you to know about Alzheimer's Speaks uh, Radio is that we want to raise everyone's voice. So if if you're a person with dementia, if you're a family caregiver or a friend, um, if you have a business that is really making a difference in the lives of those dealing with dementia. Uh, maybe you're a researcher. Uh, maybe you are an advocate. Uh, we have film directors, musicians, authors. Everyone is welcome because, again, we believe um, that the power of one can affect many. And so if we all use our unique skills and talents um, and we're willing to share them, it just makes it so much easier on everyone. Now, you can participate also in the show a couple of ways. One, you can use our chat box, and I'll be checking that throughout the show. And you can throw out a question or a comment, um, or you can call in live. And that number is 714-364-4757. Again, that's 714-364-4757. Now, before I... um introduce our first guest. I always like to do shout out to a few different organizations. Um, one is the Purple Angel Project. Um, very excited. They got their funding uh, to do their uh, documentary shoot over here in the U.S. So they're going to be coming here sometime in the fall, which is really uh, very fun. They've they've done their shoot over in the U.K. already. Um, and this is the new global symbol for dementia, which was started by Norms McNamara and and, uh, Jane Moore, and you know it's in over 17 countries. It costs nothing, and if you're interested in utilizing this symbol and you know raising awareness, please go to alzheimerspeaks.com and then just go to our about page. You'll see the tab for the purple angel. All you have to do is click on you know get me the kit, and uh, I will shoot you over some information there. Um, Many people around the world listen to our show, and so I like to uh, remind people that the Alzheimer's Disease International is the organization of all or Alzheimer's associations around the world. So there not only can you get connected to um, what association is closest to you, but you're also going to get global data and research. Um, it's absolutely fascinating what people are doing in other countries. They have a wonderful newsletter that they send out, and um, I would highly recommend signing up for that. Um, here locally in Minnesota, I work a lot with Health Star Home Health, and I'm so excited to be working with them. Our state fair is coming up again this year. Once again, um, Health Star Home Health is going to be um, doing memory screenings um, at at our state fair. Last year was the first year it had ever been done, and they just touched so many people and made such a huge, huge impact. Um, we're also going to be um, announcing the launch of something pretty special, which I can't, I can't say yet, um, but you'll be hearing about it. And uh, it, you know, stay tuned because it's it's exciting, exciting stuff. Uh, let's see. The second half of the show, we are going to be talking with a doctor who uh, works with the Alzheimer's team, which is um, 
advancing research, and she's going to be talking about what exactly their clinical trials are about and how you can enroll. So you'll definitely want to stay tuned to that. I uh, also want to give a shout-out to the Dementia Action Alliance Group, fairly new organization uh, nationally here. We just completed our survey, uh, and we had two different surveys, one for people with dementia, another one for care partners. We had a great response. So again, I want to thank everyone for participating in that. Now it's our job um, as our committee to go back and figure out what we're going to do with all that data. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, look forward to that information because we will be getting that out to you. Um, I also want to uh, just remind people, if you are looking for a holistic route to approach this disease, a great organization to contact is the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation. They just do an amazing job. There you'll find out about exercise, diet, and meditation. They have some free educational programs as well. And then there are certain types of dementia that, you know, you know, all of them actually have their own symptoms, but um, a couple that really stand out is the Lewy body, the frontal temporal lobe, and then people having problems with speech. And um, so there is a Lewy body dementia association, and there's also one for FTD called the Association for Frontal Temporal Degeneration, and then the National Aphasia Association, which deals with speech and has some great information for you there. Um, and aphasia is spelled A-P-H-A-S-I-A. That's A-P-H-A-S-I-A. So with no further ado, let me go ahead and introduce our guests here today. Very excited um, to have uh, this this group of women with us. Um, I was approached... Uh, on this whole puzzle concept, which I just think is fascinating, personalized puzzles. Hey, how cool is that for, I don't care if you have dementia or not, but, you know, if it's capturing a birthday shot or a wedding shot or um, or helping somebody reminisce um, over the, their past, uh, just a really, really a neat, neat idea. So today we have uh, Mindy Dahlgren with us, and she spent her professional career as a Higher edu- uh, in higher education, both in private um, schools like Vanderbilt, Mercy, and Duke, and public schools like Purdue University. She's published over 50 articles in the area of student life and transition from high school to college. And she has also taught at the elementary level and spent 12 years as an ice skating instructor while at Vanderbilt. Mindy, along with her twin sister, Missy, who is also on the show with us, worked at their family farm, uh, which was an orchard and a resort out in Montana when she was younger. So welcome, Mindy. How are you today? Just fine, thanks. How are you? I'm pleased to be here. Well, good. I'm going to go ahead and pull your sister in here next. Um, Melissa Dahlgren has spent 32 years in human resource leadership roles in the private sector, primarily in the consumer products industry. And Missy serves as a member of the Education and Scholarship Three Committee um, at the Galena uh, Territory uh, Foundation. Missy and um, Mindy have both established the Mop Shop in August of 2014, which provides uh, cleaning products uh, to people as well. So welcome, Missy. How are you today? Good. Thank you so much. 
Good. I'm going to move on here and keep and keep going with our introductions here. Now, these two gals, uh, Mindy and Missy, established what they call Pieces of the Past um, in collaboration with Portrait Puzzles in May of 2014. And it's their intent to really spread the word about the power of puzzles as a reminiscence activity for people with dementia. And uh, you know, I can't wait to get into this conversation. We also have with us uh, Laura Neeson, who is a strong advocate for family care and families affected by memory disorders. She is passionate about offering um, an opening and accepting environment in which to share different types of experiences. Um, Laura has provided educational opportunities to learn about research findings, coping strategies, and ways to create life uh, a better life experience for everyone touched by dementia. Uh, she also currently volunteers at the Alzheimer's Association in honor of her mother-in-law, Marie, and her grandmother, Betty. So welcome today, Laura. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, good. We're thrilled. We're thrilled you could make it. We've got one more guest here I'm going to introduce um, regarding the pieces of the past, and that is Linda Mortens. And her career and volunteer work went hand-in-hand over the years. Um, Her passion began with her first job working in a nursing home um, in Michigan during her senior year of high school. And then she was a stay-at-home mom and served and earned her certificate of Braille transcriber for the Library of Congress in 73. She volunteers in school settings and um, meets the needs of the vision-impaired population and uh, has just uh, done some really cool, cool things um, in her life um, regarding Braille. And um, she also joined a caregiver support group and took over the leadership role um, as a facilitator um, of that group back in 2004. And that group meets the fourth Thursday of every month. Um, at uh, And uh, she's at the Midwest uh, Medical Center. So welcome, Linda. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you. Well, that's good. Um, it's really a pleasure to be on your on your program. Well, we're excited to have you. I do want to mention too that um, Jay McNamara, uh, the owner of Portrait Puzzles, was unable to make it with us today because that's uh, who these uh, ladies, uh, Mindy and Missy, are working with in terms of their pieces of the past. Um, so let's. And I'm going to throw this one out to you, Mindy, first. If you can give us a background, because um, it's always nice to know how how people kind of got involved in advocacy for dementia. Can you uh, tell me on behalf of you and your sister, um, you know, were you guys touched in your own family? And, and um, just give us a brief little background there. Sure. Uh, yes, we, we've both been touched. Um we um, live in a small town in northwest Illinois, and our parents live 2,000 miles away in the Seattle area. Uh, Dad, who celebrated his 91st birthday last April, was diagnosed with Lewy body disease in 2001. Um, he was 76 years old at the time, and although he became increasingly confused and frail, uh, he's always been the, the kind and um, soft-spoken gentleman we knew as dad. Um, Behavioral changes occurred gradually. He was always outgoing and talkative, 
and responses became single syllable words. Um, rarely did he initiate conversation, and quite honestly, he would he would sleep more and eat less. Um, having always taken pride in his personal appearance, he was less inclined to shower and shave, brush his teeth, or comb his hair. Um, there was also a period of time when Dad wandered, and being 2,000 miles away, we didn't know about these occurrences until he was safely back home, but they were certainly frightening experiences that our mother and our brother, who incidentally lives quite close to Mom and Dad, um, dealt with for several years. Mom served as his primary caregiver for 14 years, uh, but as she aged, it became increasingly clear that she needed some assistance taking care of Dad and, and managing the house. And it, it, we struggled a bit with her to um, acknowledge that she needed some, some help, and ultimately uh, she did agree to have some caregivers come in, uh, and that helped tremendously. But uh, as time passed, Dad needed help waking up in the morning, getting into and out of bed, eating, showering, and walking. Uh, some days he would sleep 20 hours or more, and he was con increasingly confused about where he was. Uh, Mom's challenge really became getting nourishment and medication to him in a timely manner. So in late January, um, he transitioned to an adult family home. It was a difficult decision, as you might um, guess, for Mom, and she agonized over it for, for many months. But it was a decision that we supported, and um, particularly as we grew incre increasingly concerned about her own health. She was always in duty and constantly in guard. Uh, when she slept, she did so fitfully <laughs> with one eye open and one ear always open. Um, but plans for the transition were made with great care. Um, we made decisions about the possessions that Dad would take, and our brother had his new room set up before Dad arrived. Uh, we included family photos. Uh, he had restored a Model A that he, he loved, and so a picture of his Model A went with him. Um, his blanket and pillow, a chair from home, a pictorial chronology of his life that we'd presented to him one Christmas, uh, a card table, and, of course, the puzzles that I know we'll have a chance to talk about later. Um, we, the transition has been as good, I think, as it could have been. Dad's room is lovely. He's safe. The caregivers are kind, thoughtful, welcoming, and uh, a member <coughs> of the family has visited, um, or in our case, talked with him throughout each week. So we're, we're continuing to take things one step at a time, um, always thankful for Dad's good days and, and, quite honestly, forever grateful for the many treasured memories we have of our much-loved parents. Okay, great. Mindy, anything you want to add to that? Or, uh, Missy, anything you want to add to that? No, I, I think, you know, that's really a, a great recap. We, um, you know, we feel particularly blessed that um, Dad um, does still seem to know us when we call, and um, he really has remained the, the kind, polite, and gentle man that we have always known and loved. So, uh, you know, we, we do feel very, very blessed, and, and um, the adult family home is, is very, very nice, and the folks love him, and take very good care of him, and again, our our mom and brother are able to visit several times a week, and we call a couple times a week and send care packages or, or cards with pictures of us and, and our home here um, on a weekly basis. So again, it, it's about as good as it can be, I think. Okay, great. Um, Laura, would you mind uh, giving people a little background if you've been touched by dementia in your family? Well, of course. Um, 
when I was a very young professional, I experienced, um, or my first experience, I should say, was watching my parents very lovingly and compassionately caring for my grandmother who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So I was a little once removed from the process, but I was exposed to it and really saw probably, um, you know, some of the finest moments. I don't know that at that time um, I had just completed college if I knew entirely how stressful and maybe anxiety-producing it was for my parents, but I was exposed to it for the first time um, with my grandmother. Little did I know at that time that my parents were actually modeling the way for myself and my husband and really providing a roadmap for us years later when my mother-in-law, my husband's mom, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and we became um, very quickly the primary caregivers of, of her as she went through this experience with Alzheimer's for about 12 years. So um, we got up and, and close to it, and although there were years where it was confusing and um, a little anxiety-producing, we learned to grow into it. And the most significant thing um, that we look back at you know, now that she is deceased is it was a very joyful time. We were calm and collected and tried to bring as many resources to her disease as possible, and then we just loved her and showed as much compassion as we possibly could. So as we look back, um, you know, I decided that I want to help others go through this process because it can be a very joyful time, and although there are times where you can't believe it's happening, um, it's, it all works out and it, it's all good. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, Linda, how about you? Have you been personally touched by dementia? Yes, um, my family embarked on a journey of the unknown um, when my mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease in June of 2002. She was at that time living in Michigan by herself, and um, we coaxed and, and um, pleaded with her, please move to Galena, Illinois with us, and she did. She then, at that point, we were very fortunate because the Galena South Senior Care Community in Galena um, had um, assisted living um, available, and it didn't matter at that time what the diagnosis was. As mom progressed in the disease, she then moved into their nursing home. Um, during that time, um, she spent a lot of time doing different activities in the adult daycare and I, I was over there every day and volunteered in all three of the um, different programs. Um, my mother actually did pass away in January um, in 2009, and she actually went through the seven stages of Alzheimer's disease. I think the biggest thing for, for, uh, for my family was um, making the choice of how we were going to handle um, my mother's diagnosis, and we decided that it was going to be positive. And the one thing that I've always said is that my mother had Alzheimer's disease. However, I was not going to let Alzheimer's rob me of my mother. So we met the challenges of the seven stages. Um, I agree with Laura. Um, we did this with joy and by living in my mother's moment. Um, I think probably... The most significant thing for me was um, the caregiver support group in Galena. 
I joined that the minute I knew my mother had been diagnosed. And um, and our group is still active, and it has been absolutely, um, I, I think, the most helpful, um, meaningful thing that happened along the line for my family, for myself, and for all the other people in the community facing this. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you. I also want to uh, just uh, give a little shout-out here and, and uh, pull Harry Urban in. He is with us, and Harry is actually diagnosed with dementia. So how are you doing today, Harry? I see you're on the line and able to join us, so thank you. I'm doing fine, Lori. Thank you. Uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Well, good, good. Well, we will pull you in again a little later, but I just wanted to let people know you're there. So um, <laughs> Harry is just a wonderful, wonderful man doing some great, great work um, in terms of raising awareness. And so um, he always has some some great insight for us as well. Um, you, you each kind of talked a little bit about what it was like in terms of dealing with your family, but I, I would imagine that there's probably some things that we can add. And so, Missy, I'm going to go ahead and, and pull you in for this one, and maybe if you can talk for you and Mindy, um, you know, on you know what it was like, the, the whole family impact and, and the, you know, what kind of coping, coping mechanisms did you use in terms of, of dealing with dementia with your father? Uh-huh. Well, I, I think um, we are fortunate in that we have a very close family. And although Mindy and I are obviously far away from um, mom and our brother, we we talk often and there were times when we did make trips home to be supportive of just going through the entire process and, and making some of the decisions that, that had to be made. Um, I mean, it, it was certainly very tough, but we, we talked a lot. We supported uh, one another a great deal, and we were always um, most concerned about um, both mom and dad, frankly, feeling as though they would both be, be safe and taken care of no matter what. I mean, with, with us, it has always been, whether a job or anything else, families first. And um, that's, that's pretty much been the way that we have, uh, you know, looked at, at this journey. Um, we have been very supportive. Again, we, we, we talk a lot. Uh, we help mom with some of the frustrations simply by being there and being supportive of her, uh, go through some of her own um, concerns and issues and frustrations and um, disappointments and, and so on and so forth. It, it's very, very tough on the caregiver, as folks out there know. Um, you know, in many respects, Dad got, you know, certainly a great deal of attention, and, and yet there's an, a lot of attention that is due and needed by the caregiver, too, in terms of, of support. So we, we tried to balance those in a way that, that made sense, again, from afar. Okay, great. And, Mindy, anything that you want to add to that? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, Missy just hit it, hit the, the nail on the head. We, we are very, very fortunate in that our family is close and has always been close. So emails fly back and forth on a, on a daily basis. Um, there are probably times when mom thinks, God, you know, this is the third one today. I've just about, <laughs> just about had it, girl. Um, <laughs> but, 
but she knows we are there to be supportive and um, that we care deeply for for both mom and dad. And um, you know, we as Missy said, we we try to do the best we can from two thousand miles. Okay, wonderful, great. And you know, Linda, how about you in in your family? How did you guys cope? Um, was everybody on the same page? I know sometimes that can be that can be a struggle at at, at times. Well, I would say that we were on the same page at the beginning. Um, we definitely all agreed. I have a brother who is married, um, so there were just the two of us. Um, and he fully agreed that, yes, the best decision was for Mom to come to Galena. However, as time went on, um, it was more and more difficult to talk to my brother about things um, because he 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 didn't agree with some of the some of the decisions that we had to make in the hardest point and I know there are so many people going through this um, long distance is really difficult to try and coordinate ideas and, and agreements um, as much as we tried to decide major decisions together he began to, to pull away um, and it ended up that my my brother did not see my mother for the last three years of her of her life, which to me was absolutely tragic. Um, his reason for that, um, and I hope this will help somebody else. His reasoning was it was too hard for him to see her go through this disease. But the most important thing I think that a person with dementia, Alzheimer's needs, they still need the love. They still need the touching. They still need you. And so my story is a little bit different because of the fact that my brother was not on the same page with me. He wasn't on the same page with the doctors. He wasn't on the same page with the care that she was getting. Um, so that so that presented a lot of different problems, and I realized through my characters group over the years that this is a very very common uh, thing that happens between siblings. And um, so I'm just hoping that you know others won't have to go through the crisis that I did with my brother. Yeah, it is tough, and it's very common, very very common, and. Yeah. Uh, very very sad. I have two brothers myself, and okay. you know they one was uh, one ended up moving out of town. My mom had the disease for thirty years though, so uh, oh but my. it started. Yeah, so she started at my age in her mid fifties, and then lived to eighty six. And um, mm. you know they it was just so painful for them um, to be around, yeah. and so they they chose not to, which you know is their mm. choice. Um, but right, it just it made, right. it made me just feel so sad because I just felt like they lost out on on so much. But you know everybody oh, has absolutely. to live their their own journey with with this, and um, you know and, and maybe their pulling away made my relationship even more special to me because I could see what they lost even clearer. I don't know, you know, oh. it just it, it it all makes me wonder, you know, because it it's just it's so fascinating. Um, and I know that there's definitely some regrets and 
and things. And again, you, there's only so much you can do to help people through their own journey. And um, it's just a very, very interesting process. Um, so thank you so much for, for sharing that uh, with us, Linda, uh, very much. I'm going to go ahead and um, pull Laura in and, um, whoops, if I can get to her here. And uh, Laura, how about how about you and your family um, in terms of coping and caring and the compassionate road? How did you guys do? Sure. Well, like Missy, Mindy, and Linda, you know, communication was very important. So just communication, you know, with the physicians and with the caregivers and with our families, you know, specifically our siblings. So we had a lot of the same challenges that you all spoke of. We also, you know, tried to be very compassionate and patient. But I think um, we've, we've alluded to, you know, that courage piece, and that's really, really important. Once we kind of grew into this after we realized what was occurring, maybe like year two or year three, we just became, I think, very you know, courageous for one and creative in in our approach to it. So this was something we didn't really know much about, but we found that the the less tight we held on, you know, the looser we were and the more creative and courageous we were, the better it went. So our kind of premise was we were going to meet Marie wherever she was that day and we were going to, I think Linda talked about it earlier, we were going to meet her in her moment. So... Um, Surprisingly, and this was really special for me to see my husband do this, we did a lot of improv. I didn't know that it was improv at the time, but we would listen with our heart and our minds to whatever she would say, and then whether it was logical or not, we would go with it. And so I think that's where, as we look back, um, that creative you know, approach to just being open and you know, creative with the whole process really let us grow into that experience. Well, I, I, I love that courageous and creative, um, and you know, just it, 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 uh, it. To me, you know, with with my mom, it taught me to play again. And I don't know if you yeah. felt like that, but it was just it was lighter, it was easier, it was it was fun, it was brilliant. It, it wasn't this doom and gloom that everybody puts on it. Um, Absolutely. You know, because you weren't trying to put it in a box anymore. So yeah. Uh, and then as I'm it sorry. relates to our, you know, our siblings and all the grandchildren, you know, um, at times I thought maybe they thought we were too lighthearted about it, but, you know, we tried to coach them and give them guidance on, you know, what kinds of activities they could do with, with mom, and um, some, you know, met that suggestion really well and kind of got into the joy piece with us, and some were not as, you know, they weren't as comfortable with it, and I wish they could have just been a little bit more because I think they would, as you guys have already talked about, you know, I think they would have experienced that joy with us. Yep, exactly, exactly. Well, thank you for sharing. We do have a caller on the line, so I'm going to go ahead and pull them in. We've got somebody from a 951 number. You're live and on the air. Do you want to state your name and if you have a question or a comment for us? Yeah, this is Rich. How are you this morning, Lori? Good, good. How are you doing, Rich? Good. Enjoying your conversation. I really enjoyed the Parade Magazine's article back on June 21st regarding Alzheimer's. It was nice to see it out there in the public. And I do believe your name got dropped in the article too, Miss LeBay. 
Yeah, yeah, for Memory Cafe. So that was pretty cool. That and that has a huge reach. Um I think it's like 18 million or something like that. It's just kind of a massive reach. So we we got a, a wonderful response off that. Um anything think, that I, I, mm-hmm. I think that's great and from my perspective that was actually published one day before the 1 year anniversary of my wife who passed away at 59 from Alzheimer's. So um, through the process of the grieving and stuff, it, just to let you know, it's so important to me to see that it's out there and that we start the conversation. And perhaps just getting the conversation out there will get more family involvement. And in my case, the family just was in denial. And as I was listening before, it's too sad for them. And there's there's really... <sighs> Without the publicity like that and the understanding of this disease, which I'm hoping we will get more of, it's it's probably going to persist until we get it out there in the public, what it's like, what it's like to be a caregiver. And For me personally, it meant the world to me when someone would call the house and see my wife smile and laugh. And when you're in that box, as you say, just those moments charges up the caregiver. That's what I want to say is that getting getting the battery recharged for a caregiver could be something as a simple five-minute call from a family member. Great. Well, thanks for calling in, Rich. Appreciate your input. I Have appreciate a great day. what you do, Ms. LeBay. Thank you. Um, well, that was, uh, that was Rich Garner, and um, I appreciate his call in. Um, why don't we go ahead and move on? Uh, you know, one of the things that we don't typically do well, especially uh, here in the States, is taking care of ourselves. So, Mindy, I'm going to throw this one to you. How did, how did you care for yourself as a caregiver? And, you know, how did your, how did your mom and your other family members do? Well, you know, that's tough because I think you, or at least certainly mom, has put dad and, and um, you know, his needs in front of her own, um, which I think is what most people would, would tend to do under the circumstances. Um, so it, it's that's very a very tough question. Um, we tried to encourage her to... Um, continue doing some of the things that she enjoyed, whether it was meeting friends for lunch or um, continuing with her aerobics classes, her uh, swimming classes, aerobics classes in the pool. Um, but quite honestly, that that fell to the wayside pretty quickly. Um, she got concerned about, about leaving the house. Um, even when Dad had a caregiver there, she was a bit concerned about leaving. Um, so we we struggled with that, and um, it's a toughie. It's a toughie. Mm-hmm. I mean, she she's always enjoyed reading. She still she still does read. I think that's probably one thing that um, allows her to escape from the from the daily stressors. Um, but in terms of getting out and and exercising and seeing friends and even shopping, um, it it was a tough situation. Okay. Yeah, it it's it's never easy. Uh that's for sure. Uh, Missy, how about you? Anything that you want to add? Uh you know, in, in terms of how how you um or you saw your family care for themselves as caregivers? Well, I I think one thing that we um do know that mom um was able to do, she she is very much a people person. And so 
at several of um, Dad's doctor's appointments, she did meet folks who were going through similar experiences, similar journeys, and she has maintained contact with those folks. And that's, I think, been very helpful to um, to everyone involved. I mean, she she could actually talk to somebody who was going through the same thing, who had the same struggles, who had the same frustrations, and uh, that was that was huge for her. And those relationships are very special and uh, again very helpful because many of the caregiver um, programs in the Seattle area tend to be in the evenings after the caregiver would leave. She didn't really have an opportunity to engage in those as much as we would have wished or she would have wished. But there were certainly social workers that she met with and folks in the doctor's office that that did prove to be very helpful, very supportive, and did make, I think, referrals that we found, um, again, very positive and, and very supportive. Okay, wonderful. And uh, Laura, same question for you. Um, how how did how did you and your family deal with with taking care of yourselves? Well, we did it very poorly, <laughs> um, <laughs> like most families. <laughs> I was gonna say we we just did we really missed on this area, and it's crazy because when we have our support groups. You know, I always tell people, you're really taking care of two people here. You've got to take care of yourself first so you can care for your loved one. But yet I'm a big liar because we didn't do it. So here's what (laughs) we had, just like many other families. You know, we had our jobs and our kids and our grandkids, and we were caring for our mom, you know, in a long-distance way, two hours away. And so we just forged on. I think about midway through her journey, we realized Um, the beauty of, you know, divide and conquer. So we finally figured it out, but we realized that if we scheduled family members and friends to visit, you know, in a divide and conquer kind of way, that she could experience that richness of having close people by her. But it, you know, of course, didn't need to always be us. It was, we just need to pulse it. So she had a lot of engagement and then ultimately a lot of happiness and well-being but we weren't in charge of all that. It took a community of family and friends to keep her plugged in and engaged. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, so true. Thank you. And thank you for being honest, too. Yes, Linda, how, I'm sorry. <laughs> how, how about you and your family, Linda? Well, I think I was very fortunate in the respect that um, I was reti- I had been retired during this whole process. So I was able to go over to um, the Galena South Senior Center, and I was with my mother every day. And over there, everything about the center was positive and uplifting, no matter what situation or illness you had or diagnosis. So we did, I, I have to say, I really, and my and my husband, he's been just an angel through this and, and um, it, it would, I think, agree with everything I've said. We had fun with my mother. We, um, we were able to do things for her that were so good for her, um, just for her, what, um, dignity and respect. She, she started painting when she was 65. And so, for instance, we had a big showing of all her paintings and opened it to the community. Um, 
everything that we did with my mother, being that it was so positive and so much fun, helped us to take care of ourselves. We had that energy of knowing that we were all coping and, and doing the best we could for her, and that allowed ourselves time to exercise and um, just just our daily experiences of um, being out in the community with mom or being at the senior center um, provided us with the social. It provided us with being able to ask questions. It provided us with time that we could go and do some things for ourselves. Okay, great. Thank you. Harry, I want to pull you in on this question because I, I want to see what you see from the other side. Um, a person living with dementia, um, how do you see caregivers taking care of themselves or, or don't you? Uh, well, first of all, you have to realize I live in a different world than you. Uh, I like the world I'm living in. It is easy for me and I feel safe in it. Uh, and you're welcome into my world at any time, but don't try to drag me back into your world because I don't understand it and I'm afraid of it. Uh, now, as far as caregivers taking care of themselves, they, now I'm selfish. I, I demand my wife takes care of herself so she can take care of me. Now, I mean, that's selfish on my part, but but it's not. I mean, she has to realize that that she has to take care of herself. And and that's that's something that caregivers don't believe in. I mean, they they think they can do everything on their own. And um I'm here to tell you people like me we're a handful. And uh <laughs> sometimes sometimes you just have to sit back and and you have to take care of yourself and let somebody else handle the problem. Yeah, I think that's very true. I, I know that uh, myself and I and I'm sure all the others here and and those that are listening. I mean, you feel you feel guilty if you take off and do something for yourself because uh, you know you 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 worry. You know, will will your loved one be cared for properly? You know, um, sometimes we think we're the only ones who can do it. Um, sometimes we don't think that, but we act that way, and then our siblings think that, and so then they back away. I know I ran into that with my brothers. Um, so yeah, it's it's an interesting thing, and then and then we get mad at one another for not being there, and we don't always open the door for help. And so, very very good point, Harry. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, Mindy, I'm going to go to you now. I really want to talk about um, what activities you found to work well to engage um, those with dementia. And I'd really like to focus on the puzzle because um, I can't believe we're down to 15 minutes left already of the show. So <laughs> we need to, we need to make sure that we get the pieces of the past in here. So um, can, well, you, I appreciate can you give that. us a little background? Thank you. Sure. Um, several years ago, it, we really were in search of an activity that would provide dad with pleasure and a sense of satisfaction. And we discovered portrait puzzles. Um, it's a, a small company in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and um, family photos can be uploaded to the portrait puzzle website, and they are magically transformed into high-quality puzzles. 
And the the 30 piece puzzles are are simply perfect for dad because each puzzle piece is about three and a half by three and a half inches. They're easy for him to handle. Um, he can work with the puzzles independently, or he can do them with others. Um, it's a great way for him to um, be able to converse with other people and for other people to learn a little bit about um, dad and, and dad's life and our family. Um, he, as I said earlier, he remodeled or he um, has a Model A, and um, he has several puzzles of his Model A. There, we probably give him given him something like. 12 over the last few years, but birthday celebrations, vacations, family photos, special holidays, um, and he loves his puzzles, and um, they've just been a godsend for for him, and they've also really been helpful to mom because um, if there are times when dad's attention needs to be redirected, um, she can do that with these puzzles. And so they've been very useful tools for for her, and quite honestly, it's been very heartwarming to know that there's an activity that Dad enjoys, that brings him pleasure, and that he can get a sense of satisfaction in completing. Um, So that's it in a nutshell. We we met with Jay McNamara, who you mentioned earlier, who's the owner of Portrait Puzzles, um, in May of 2014. We had already established pieces of the past in an attempt to spread the word about the power of puzzles um, because we had learned that for those with dementia, they can provide relaxation, social stimulation, conversation, and really kind of a uh, reminiscence therapy, if you will, that improves memory and brain function. Um, so it's just been a, a great tool for, for us, and we really are very anxious and eager to to spread the word to others. So other families can um, derive the same pleasure that we have. Great, great. Missy, anything you want to add there? You know, I I would just say that the the thing that has been um, fun, I think both for mom and caregivers who um, have observed dad working with these puzzles, is that he has really gotten better and better at it, and he can complete them more and more quickly. And he, you know, he clearly has his favorites, and, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been great. You know, I, I think, um, again, to Mindy's point, it was important for us to find something that Dad would both enjoy and would feel some success with. And um, so I would, you know, I invite folks, folks to take a look at piecesofthepastpuzzles.com and, and see if it might be something that, that would help them. Um, you know, we, we really believe that we are, you know, on this journey together and um, that if we can help other folks simply learn from our experiences that's really what it's that's really what it's all about and so again spreading the word is is important to us and and uh again if we can be helpful that would be a terrific reward okay and quite great. frankly mom and dad would want us to be doing just this mhm yep which is cool sharing sharing your knowledge um Laura I'm I want to ask uh, for your opinion since you work in a in a community setting what are your thoughts with uh pieces of the past Oh my goodness our memory care families love these puzzles it it we see just increased you know engagement increased well-being increased happiness I think it it's an activity that 
of course, each resident enjoys, but to have it be customized to their life with their, you know, car or their dog or their house, that just takes it to a new level because the professional caregivers or family member or friend that, you know, sits with them and, you know, participates in this puzzle, they get to reminisce about that car or that dog or that house. And so it it just, Every time someone sits down to participate in this puzzle, you know, it's it's all good. It it really it not only increases their mood and their calmness and their well being, but as so many people know with memory disorders, that well being and that sense of happiness lasts many, many hours into the day. Yeah, I can I you know, I wish I would have known about this with my mom when she was in her earlier stages. I did just put in the chat box this link, though it is on the website as well. Um but I just I see so many different uses for this. Um you know, dementia or not, I I just the sharing of history, um which is something we don't do very well. And then, you know, kind of making a game out of it and then, uh, you know, helping it raise connection and have communication um, is, is just a, it's, it's a brilliant, uh, fun, fun way to work. Linda, what are your thoughts about pieces of the past puzzles? Oh, I think they're excellent. I, uh, when I first met Mindy and Missy um, and, they, and they told me about um, pieces of the past, I said, well, you know, I really think what I'd like to do is have you come to one of our caregivers' meetings. And um, since that time, everybody has been extremely enthusiastic about it, and um, that's something that we, each month as we meet, um, I always have the puzzle set out and the information, and we always, and we always talk about it no matter what the subject is. And it, it's just, I, I think, just a wonderful, wonderful um, social um, interaction that you can do with your loved ones. Mm-hmm. Great, um, Harry. I'm gonna I'm gonna pull you in as well. In terms of what do you what do you think about making uh, pictures that you have into a puzzle? Um, does that sound uh, something that would be of interest to you? In terms of, um, absolutely, Lori. Uh, I love puzzles. Uh, I love I love the the concept of a maybe a group family uh, portrait or something, uh, maybe at a picnic or whatever. And as as we're building the puzzle, we're telling the story of the picture. Like when we when we put the picture or the piece of the puzzle of of uh, an aunt, uncle, sister, brother, whatever, we tell a little story about that. Uh, that's what makes putting these puzzles together so much fun when you can interact like that. Uh, it's just not it's just not the fact of picking up a piece and making it fit. It, it's it's the interaction that goes along with it. Now, one of the questions I do have, I am. Um, I'm really interested in this, uh, but a lot of times wonderful ideas are wonderful, but we can't afford them. What what's mm-hmm. the price what's the price range of some of these puzzles? Okay, and Mindy, I'm going to go ahead and throw that back to you. Sure, the the 30 piece puzzle that I had mentioned it's 16 by 20 inches and it's 34 dollars and 99 cents, plus five dollars in shipping. 
Um, but if you enter the Pieces of the Past promotion code, it's POP, um, you receive a $2 discount. And then Jay has been gracious enough to um, offer uh, a donation to the Alzheimer's Association and Caregiver Action Network for $5 for every puzzle sold. Great. That's so, wonderful. Any other comments, Harry? No, I, I, uh, I'm I really excited about that because uh, uh, I always look for new ways of, of challenging uh, people living with dementia. And uh, I, get, I get so much pushback because people think they can't do that uh, mm-hmm. and things like that. But, but puzzles are the perfect thing that uh, you can let us tell the story. You know, we might need help putting the pieces together, but uh, if, you're, if you're smart enough, you can draw some kind of a story out of that puzzle. And that's, mm-hmm. that's the key. That's, that's what makes it also worthwhile. I agree. I, I definitely agree. Thank you for, for your insight, Harry, and and uh, it's always so so helpful for all of us. Um, Missy, I'm going to throw something to you, and that is um, what kind of challenges and opportunities do you think there are in terms of reaching out, you know, to care partners? Uh-huh. I, I think from my perspective there are really um, there are really a couple. Um, you know, certainly the the timing of when support may be available, as I alluded to earlier, um, that that doesn't always work into a caregiver's schedule. So I think that's something that's always going to be a challenge and and an opportunity. And uh, I think that there is, um, you know, still significant hesitation on some folks' part to admit that they need help. Most mm-hmm. most people or many people, you know, don't won't want to raise their hand and say, "I could use some." <laughs> and um, so I, I think as we continue to talk about the challenges and talk about the journeys, that um, people will engage in a way that is more supportive, and um, others can come together to provide the help that they need. I, I think people want to be helpful. I think it's how can we be helpful and how can we encourage those that that really need support and need help to feel okay about asking for it. Good good point. Uh Mindy, how about you? Any any challenges or opportunities in terms of reaching care partners that you see? Um uh, I'm I'm not sure I have anything to add to what Missy has just said. Um Okay. You know, I, I yeah, I really don't. Okay, that's fine. And Linda, how about you? Well, I think um, I think one thing is if someone does say to you, um, "Gee, you know, I'm available for you. Um, let me know if I can help." I think what you have to do is um, give specifics. It, you know, if someone does reach out to you and you and you take and you take their help, tell them that. On Monday at 8 a.m., I need to um, go to a doctor's appointment, but I need someone to stay with mom or dad during that mm-hmm. time. Um, so I think when people do reach out to you, um, give specific.
specific so that they can say, yes, I'd be happy to come over or yes, I'd be happy to drive so that they also feel like like they're helping. Mhm. Okay. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Um how about Laura? How about you? What what do you think in in terms of challenges and opportunities for reaching out to caregivers? Any suggestions there? Oh, yes. This is a topic near and dear to me. Um <laughs> I say, you know, there's a courtesy answer when someone asks the primary caregiver, "How are things going? How's Walter doing?" There's the courtesy answer in which you reply, you know, fine. And I, I think it depends on who's asking. If they are a close family member or friend, I always encourage our primary caregiver to just think about that question before you answer it. Um, I think they don't know how to answer it, so they just say fine and move on to the next topic. What I encourage them to do is say, oh, we're fine, thank you. Although Walter's having difficulty with his sleep cycle, he is, you know, sleeping during the day and up all night, and therefore I'm up all night. So anything that you can do to help in that regard, maybe, and then like Linda says, really get into specifics, would you be willing to come over to the house for a couple hours during the afternoon so I can take a nap? You know, because, of course, she's been up with him, you know, all night. So I think uh-huh. I encourage people to to think about a, who's asking the question? If it's a, an acquaintance, to give a courtesy answer is fine. But if it's a, if it's a, you know, adult ch- child or a very close neighbor or a friend who's trusted and in your circle and knows really what's going on, just say, "Gosh, we had a rough week this week, and mm-hmm. I need some help with groceries, or I need some help with this or that." So I think there are so many folks close to you that want to help; they just don't know what to do. So I talk to the primary caregivers about really taking a leadership role there and expressing clearly what they do need help with because that friend or family member does want to help. They do. Yep, I I agree. And it's just, it's such a a twist in terms in terms of people's comfort levels Um, and, and that dance of, you know, I know I'm supposed to ask, but I'm not quite sure what I'm supposed to do from there. And 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 we're just not good at um, at receiving help at all. And so it's so easy for us just to you know to turn it down. So, well, listen, ladies, I thank you all so much for um, being with us and sharing your stories and and letting us know about pieces of the past puzzles dot com. Um, I just think it's a, a fantastic opportunity for uh, for everyone um, to be able to utilize these, you know, get your home pictures um, made into puzzles. What a fascinating thing for uh, for people with dementia, for children, uh, for adults of all ages. I can, I can see this being a really kind of a cool gift um, to be able to give people um, in remembrance. Um, of just a, an absolutely fun, fun um, time in, in, in their life and helping them engage. So um, thank you so much. If people are interested, they can also um, email Melinda, and her last name is D-A-L-G-A-R-N at AOL.com. Um, and again, uh, you can go to www.piecesofthepastpuzzles.com or you can go to portraitpuzzles.com as well. Thank you so much for being with us, ladies. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure.
Thank you. Great. Thank you. You guys have a wonderful day. Um, excited to uh, be able to roll into our our next guest here in just a minute. I'm just going to give you some brief highlights uh, before I introduce her. Um, if you haven't listened to our last show, that might also be of interest to you. Patrick Talley was with us in Making a Difference with Technology, and he has some cool things you can do with pictures as well in terms of making um, making short little videos, and uh, it's really, and his applications are free. So uh, check him out. He's got three different apps. One hasn't been launched. One is going to be uh, more of a, a GPS, but it's much smaller than what we've seen um, out in the market right now. And then our next show next Tuesday, we're going to have Lori Shearer on with uh, Dementia Days, and uh, she is living with dementia. She's going to give us some some great insights. Um, we did our dementia chats on the 14th, and with that one, we you know on dementia chats, we have our panel of experts. Harry Urban, who is with us today, is one of them, and uh, we discussed uh, about the moving target of a person with dementia, with their abilities and disabilities, and how it how it fluctuates, and how that can affect not only the person who's diagnosed, but those that care for them. And then we discussed the launch of the new Dementia-Friendly America and what that means for us today and tomorrow and what people um, would like to see happen with this. So uh, that is also recorded. Um, everything you can access by alzheimerspeaks.com. On our blog, we had a, um, a great article that got a lot of comments um, regarding dementia, the benefits of meditation and spiritual fitness. There was also the Dementia Action Alliance webinar, Living Fully with Dementia. Um, that currently, uh, I have not seen the recording of that uh, yet, but as soon as I get that, I will let you know. Wonderful article on Mara Botanis, um, an amazing lady leading the charge against dementia, Mara uh, just received the National Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis Award. And and then last night, um, I just reblogged something from Truthful Loving Kindness. Uh, she talks about the time and energy consumption that it takes when you have dementia symptoms just to, you know, be able to engage. And then last, I just want to say, if you're, if you're going to be in Ina, Illinois on August 6th, come and see me at Rend College. I would love love the opportunity to meet you in person. So let's roll into our uh, our second half of our show here. We're going to be talking about clinical trials, and we're lucky enough to have Dr. Neelim Art. Oh, let's see. I'm going to pr probably pronounce your name wrong, so please correct me. Argerwal, um, and uh, she works with the population of, of health neurologists and clinical researchers in the field of longevity and aging. Um, she is also the co-leader of the Rush Alzheimer's Disease Clinical Corps in Chicago and an associate professor uh, in the Department of uh, Neurological Sciences at Rush University Medical Center. She's authored more than 40 manuscripts and presented at national and international conferences on topics of aging and dementia. She's a frequent blogger for the Alzheimer's Disease Cooperative Study Group and um, comments on her findings on aging research in the area of both women's brain 
um, racial and ethnic and my, minorities and special populations. So thank you so much for being with us today. How are you doing today, uh, Doctor? You know, I'm doing fine, and thank you for inviting me. And I'm going to ask you how you pronounce your name, because I know I just cremated it, and I'm, <laughs> I apologize for that. Uh, you know, the last name is Agarwal. Uh, so it's Neelam, yeah, Neelam Agarwal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Really excited to talk with you about clinical trials and, you know, what are they and, and why are they important? Um, we hear a lot about them, um, but I know that there's also a lot of hesitation for people with these. And so can you can you give us a little sure. background on what they are and why they're important for us? Okay. Well, first of all, you know, clinical trials, if you want to think about it very in a general way, is a trial or a study that wants to test something. So we're trying to test um, a possible intervention, whether it be a medicine, it could be a therapy, um, it could be, um, you know, doing a survey uh, on someone to see if that would help diagnose, prevent, maybe even treat or cure a disease. So it's just really a formal way of looking at we have an issue, we have a disease, what can we do to see if this can make it better? And there are different types of trials. Some have medicine, some have more non-medicine, but they're therapies nevertheless. Now, why are they important? Well, you know, they're important because if we don't engage people to come into trials, we just don't know, frankly, what works for a specific disease. And we then rely on a person's experience in treating the disease just by experience, but not in a focused and a structured way to collect information um, that could be, you know, then generalized to a larger group. And I think that's the first thing that's really important. The other thing is that, frankly, medicines, especially for Alzheimer's disease, you know, we have four medicines that have been on the market for many years. We have not had a new medicine for many, many years in Alzheimer's. And those medicines got on the market because clinical trials were done with people who said, you know, this is what's happening, these medicines, uh, what is this medicine, let's try this medicine, and and is it worth it? Is it changing something? So everything that you see, all your medicines, even the over-the-counter medications that are out there, went through, for the most part, like aspirin is a great example, they went through initially some trials. Does it make a difference? And then it depends on how, you know, um, I guess how much of a side effect it can occur, whether or not it comes over the counter or a prescription. So that's why they're really important. Okay. Now, in terms of Alzheimer's disease, you know, I, I guess I see them as being just critical given the numbers of people and the, mm-hmm. the kind of lack of knowledge we know. Um, why do you feel that clinical trials regarding Alzheimer's disease and dementia is important? Well, there, you know, it's important because, you know, you're, you just mentioned one important thing. So many people are uh, really having this disease. You know, it's really coming down to where it's going to be hard to find someone who's not touched by the disease, either by a friend or know someone or who caring for someone or someone who has the disease. And that's a really staggering kind of statistic that's out there uh, with the numbers uh, of people who will be affected. And trials um, allow for new medicines and new therapies 
to be um, looked at and investigated to see if we can, number one, slow down the disease from progressing if someone has it, but more importantly, can we start doing trials to prevent the disease? And I think that's one of the things that has really changed over the last few years in the Alzheimer research world, where we are now shifting our focus on prevention. And we've never really tried to talk too much about prevention and trials, and this is where we're really encouraging people to look at trials again, think about trials. You know, one thing I say to my patients, and I say it to physicians and patients, whenever I see someone in my office with Alzheimer's disease, and I talk about medicines, and I talk about treatments. I also talk about trials. Trials have to be part of the clinical uh, treatment program, if you will. They cannot be left out in kind of out there. Well, okay, maybe we'll do a trial. It should be talked about in the terms of how we're going to treat someone with the disease. Mm-hmm. Definitely, absolutely agree with that. Can you can you tell us some of the specific benefits that you see mm-hmm. in terms of of clinical trials? Yeah, you know, it's and I'm glad you bring that question up because there are benefits for trials that sometimes people don't realize until they get in a trial and then they then they start talking about what they expected and also what they got out of the trial. So one of the things that happens is uh, one of the good benefits is that people get engaged into um, doing something, and I think that's so critically important, Uh, especially with this disease. People feel at times like, I'm not doing anything. It's just happening to me. It's happening to my loved one. It's happening. We're not doing anything, and that creates anxiety, and that creates frustration, anxiety, and frankly, depression. So trials allow people to get engaged and to do something. Um, Also, you know, the the caregivers have said, I never thought that I would get so much out of this trial, even though my loved one was in the trial. And what they mean by that comment has been, I got more information, I've learned about this disease, I've been much more educated, Um, I see the doctor and the team whenever I come in for the various visits, Um, I'm able to ask questions. Um, I'm able to get more personalized care, and I get I get tests done that maybe I would not have been able to get tests done, and that has a level of not only comfort but for education. And I think that's really important, and people, they, they continually tell me that, wow, I didn't realize this is what I would get out of participating in this trial. Yeah, that's uh, and that's huge. I mean, um, some of the the benefits that you listed there are, are it's really, huge. Really important. Yeah. Now, an- another thing that you know we're hearing so much about in terms of you know early detection, and there's been articles that you know some doctors know, but they're not even telling their people. Why do you think it's important that there is early detection? Well, you know, I think. Um when you think about early detection, you know, if you look at the research and the research that I'm involved with is that we know that changes already occur in the brain up to about 20 years before any clinical symptom occurs. So what does that mean? It means that the brain is already undergoing changes before the symptom of forgetfulness, especially like in Alzheimer's, the short-term forgetfulness starts to appear, okay? Um, the, the, The brain changes are occurring, let's say, before maybe the mood changes are starting to um, occur, people becoming more quiet or having more difficulty with language or or spatial types of tasks. 
And that's important. That's an important comment. That's an important research finding because it's now pushing us to say, okay, we need to start talking about what can we do to, number one, slow this down if it's going to occur, but number two, get medicines on board, if you will, at that stage so that we can prevent it. And I think the biggest thing, you know, that has totally pushed this changes occurring up to 20 years earlier has to do in in two areas. Imaging of the brain has taken off, and we are now imaging the brain and seeing not only what the brain looks like, you know, through an MRI, which many people are familiar with, but we are now looking at what the brain does. How is the brain functioning? And that's coming through special scans called PET scans, which can look at blood flow and can look at where the amyloid, the, the proteins in the brain that are causing some trouble are really located. And, be, you know, that is the biggest driver, neuroimaging. And then we also know people who've had brain autopsies done, and that's something we do at Rush, and we do many of them. We know that people who've had no signs of Alzheimer's disease can have plaques and tangles in the brain. And you were like, whoa, you know, those are there, and there's no signs. So that means there's things happening in the brain um, that can already tell us we maybe need to take care and try to prevent the disease. And that is why we're really pushing early detection, because now we have the tools to detect it earlier, and we need more research to, you know, basically hone in on what we need to do. Okay. Can you tell us, you know, what are some of the things that you're doing at the research center in Mm -hmm. the Alzheimer's clinical trial area? Sure. So, you know, here in Chicago at the um, Alzheimer's Center, uh, we have a very... Um, I would say probably a very wide array of clinical trials that we do, and we've done that on purpose. We've been very intentional with this, that we want to make sure we we do trials that can, um, really go through the spectrum of what is happening with thinking and, and aging and the aging brain. So, for example, we will have prevention studies coming through the center where we can recruit people who have don't do not have a diagnosis of dementia, but perhaps have a family member who has dementia or who knows of someone who has dementia and they're very concerned. Okay, and we would have trials to see if they can qualify and come in a prevention study. Then we have trials that have to do with the diagnosis of dementia. So a doctor has diagnosed dementia feels it's Alzheimer's, and then the question of the now what. So now what are we going to do? We're on medication, now what? And that's where I get involved. And I say, you know, here are some trials for mild Alzheimer's. Here are some trials for moderate Alzheimer's. And then here are some trials for persons who have severe Alzheimer's. So we really try to go across the full spectrum of the disease, okay? And we again, it's uh, something that we've been very intentional in doing because to raise awareness not only to the doctors and the community that there are things out there, but to the but to the public that there are different uh, opportunities for research participation. And also, you know, I have to add, when you have this kind of a program, you're able to reach a large group of people. So I work, you know, exclusively at times with the minority communities, and often they're coming in quite late in the disease state. And then the question is, doctor, what do you have for a trial in this stage? And we are, you know, we're very into making sure we have something for all groups of people coming in in various stages of the disease. Okay. Now, one thing that I have to ask is, um, 
you know, I asked the question, uh, uh, you know, about, you know, what are you doing in terms of research for Alzheimer's? Mm-hmm. Is it just Alzheimer's or do you do Lewy body or, or FTD or you any know, of the others? Right, and that's a, we do do those um, studies. We have seen them come through, but we have really focused on Alzheimer's here at our center. Um, okay. uh, you know, we have centers in Chicago at Northwestern that is very, very good in doing frontotemporal dementias and primary progressive aphasia, those kinds of trials. And then, you know, with regards to Lewy body, what's interesting is that um, our movement disorder colleagues, you know, my neurology colleagues in movement disorders, they have also taken an interest in starting to do trials that engage, um, you know, Lewy body uh, dementia and also Parkinson's disease. Um, and we're seeing that also. Um, we have a website, um, you know, www.don'tforgetalzheimers.com or alzheimerschicago.com that people can go on and look for various studies that are going on. But, again, they're out there. Uh, you know, that's the message. Mm-hmm. They're out there. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. Um, now, one of the questions that people get all the time, you know, there's kind of this big conversation, and I know it was just in the media uh, the other day again, is is does Alzheimer's affect women differently than men? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, and it, and it does, uh, you know. And I'm really glad that finally the press is coming around to this. This has been a discussion that has been ongoing for a long time in the research and in the clinical world. You know, as doctors, you know, number one, we we know that we see more women than men in general that are coming in um, with memory issues. Um, We also see more women and daughter-in-laws and daughters coming into the clinics bringing their loved one in, okay? So, you know, number one, we see the women being affected, but number two, we see the women as the caregivers coming Mm -hmm. in. And right now, I think one of the, the, for the listeners to to realize, the lifetime risk of developing Alzheimer's disease is one in five compared to one in ten for men, okay? And Mm -hmm. that is really important because what it's saying is, is that women over their lifetime really have twice the risk of developing Alzheimer's compared to men. And the argument always was, well, women just live longer. Of course they're going to get this disease. It's all due to age. Age is a factor, but it is not... We don't twice as long. (laughs) That's exactly... Well, this is the whole thing. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, the other thing is, hello, age is a factor, but it is not the only thing. We're really trying to understand what are the reasons. And, of course, of course, Hormones come into the play here, right? Hormones, mm-hmm. estrogen, and you know the estrogen that we lose when we go into the menopausal stage, and how what's the effect on that, um, on memory and thinking? Um, we're also looking at stress and heart issues. This is two areas that really need to be looked at um, more deeply, especially heart issues with women. Women have very high rates of heart disease. And, again, is this the reason why somehow we are developing also dementia more than men? And stress, is it bringing it on? So I think these are the biggest issues right now we need to really engage people in and stay on this topic, stay on this topic, and really try to figure out um, why it's occurring different in women compared to men. Yep. Oh, that's great. And I I think that the statistic of 1 in 5 and 1 in 10, I mean, and... Oh, yeah. Uh, if that's yeah. huge. I mean, if that's it's not huge. a slap in the face, <laughs> you know? yeah. So um, it's and it's important. What can women do or try to help 
to prevent the disease? Is there is there any anything out there that we can we can do differently? Well, you know, and my answer is yes, yes. And I think first of all, understanding what the risks are. Okay, it's the first mm-hmm. thing. All right, that's the first thing. Um, and I'm very big on what can I do, what can we modify. So, for example, age. Frankly, you can't really, you know, you can't really sit there and say, um, this is the age I'm going to live at, and after that, I'm going to, I'm going to die. I mean, honestly, mm-hmm. age is 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 something that's really a non-negotiable. Um, the other thing is family history. I think you need to know your family history. You need to know what are the big issues in your family history. So if heart disease runs in your family history, then we need to pay more attention to the heart health. And when I say heart disease, I am talking also about the diabetes, the cholesterol, and the high high blood pressure, not just specifically heart attacks and heart failure and those things. We have to learn what is in our history and what can we control, and those are things that to an extent you really can control. You also need to reduce stress. I say this every day to everybody who will listen to me. Get your stress under control. And people say, well, that's easier said than done. And the answer is yes, but you need to do it. Stress is hurting you. It is hurting your health. It is not just a a mental thing. It is hurting your health. We know people under stress have high, um, you know, in the blood you know, CRP, these these infl- inflammatory markers, we know that these are high. We know that cortisol is re- being released too much and not going down in the levels it should be and it's impacting memory. We know that the gut basically doesn't function as well under stress. So stress has to be controlled. I mean, before we came on, I heard you talk about meditation and, and you know, um, and trying to really reduce, you know, for thinking-wise, but also it can reduce stress. We need mm-hmm. to exercise. You know, This is mm-hmm. all common sense stuff. But here's the thing about exercise. There have been studies that have come out that exercise has much more an impact on women than it does on men. It's good for both, but for somehow for women, exercise seems to be much better, okay? And we know that when women exercise, which means aerobic exercise, their brains look different, and their brains aren't Um, becoming smaller, if you will, over time. And guess what else comes under exercise? Walking. Walking counts. And I think for the longest time, walking has got a bad rap. Walking has never been in there, well, walk. No, you need to walk. And walk as much as you can and as, as fast, slow, but just walk. Very, very good things for brain health. And then nutrition. The last thing we always talk about is diet. And this is a simple thing. I just said it last week in a conference, and here it is. I need people to be looking at what they're eating. I need them to be thinking about getting color on the plate, which means your plate has to have reds and yellows and greens on it. That's color. And you need to really choose a heart-healthy diet because that's a brain-healthy diet. Heart-healthy diet equals brain-healthy diet, and then add nuts and berries, and you're off. That is what you should be eating with every meal, yep. and that's it. I was, you know. I, I was just going to say too, and, and the colors are not artificial colors. You're talking, you're talking no. real food, real food, real here, food, guys. <laughs> yeah. real food, real food. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things we talked about earlier, um, it was when we were talking with pieces of the past, and the gals there um, in terms of reducing stress, was she was talking. Yeah. 
about just learning to, you know, live better, you know, kind of be in their world. And, um, it, you know, and, and I'm a firm believer, and this might sound really strange, that the disease is here to teach us to live differently, to engage, yeah. to to be less stressful, to let go of control, to learn how to play again. And, you know, they really talked about living in in a person with dementia's world. And when right. we do that, everything changes. I mean, it's just right. it, everything becomes much easier. Um, right. We add such stress to ourselves um, that we don't really need to do. And it's 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 sad. And I was one of them. You know, my mom had the disease for 30 years, so, I mean, I get it. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, she started in her, her mid-50s and, and lived till um, 86. But... You know, we had we had a brilliant life together, and mm-hmm. um, you know, I wouldn't have given that up. But I think it was uh, it was either Linda or Lori who talked about um, living more courageous and more creative, and it was really kind of almost an improv mm-hmm. state that reduced that that stress level, and they just had a lot more fun. You know, exactly. In terms of, in terms of engaging, um, I think we. As women, especially, you know, we're we're almost taught from very young ages to be that care provider, that caregiver on on multiple levels, and and it's it is a stressful role, you know, when you're trying to live everybody's life, you know, and kind of right. keep it keep it on par there. So, um, right. great information there. Now, if if diagnosed, you know what. You know what regime um, would you recommend for women? Is it, is it? Um, you know, I know you talked about the meditation and the exercise and eating right, and um, but you know, are there certain medications that are out there or? Um, well, you know, that's a great question, and that's the question I get all the time. Um, and I'm going to tell you, it's been very frustrating that we are not reporting any of the data um, based on sex and gender. And this is one of my, you know, big areas that I keep championing, that all clinical trial data should be reported with sex and gender differences so we can yeah. answer those questions that are coming from patients and families. And, yes, we, we you know, by law, we, we have to include uh, women and minorities, and that's a, it was very good. You know, it came into the clinical trial world, and, we um, have to do that. But when you look at actual studies, if you really look at them, it is not reported differences between men and women. Basically, the comment most of the time says no differences were noted, but actually looking at groupings, men mm-hmm. compared to women, it's not there. And there is a big push right now um, in the clinical and the clinical medical and the research world to really start promoting sex and gender types of um, analyses, but more importantly, sex and gender type of medicine. So, for example, medical students coming through that I see and on the various committees that I sit on, I am talking about sex and gender differences as it relates to many, many clinical conditions. Do you know what they are? Do you know how they affect what medications we should use? Do we know, do we even know if there are differences in meds? So at this time, I can tell you the Alzheimer medicines that are out there, there is no compelling any evidence to suggest one medicine works better in women compared to men. It's strictly based on the doctor and the doctor's experience in giving the medication, okay? 
Um, and that's an important point right now. Moving forward, it would be great to know what medicines may work better with women compared to men when it comes down to memory issues and, and diagnosing Alzheimer's disease. The other thing that um, when you talk about what women can do differently than men, especially being, um, let's say, being diagnosed, I always tell my women um, patients, they need to tell and talk to family about what they need and what they don't need. And they have to be very vocal about it. This doesn't help me. This helps me. This this situation I don't like. And and say it. Um, and because, you know, when you're a caregiver, yes, you know, you have been with the person. You're either a spouse or you've been the daughter or the son. But, you know, you really may not know what the patient needs. And I tell especially my women, be vocal, stay vocal, and express yourself. Women tend to express themselves more than men. We know that. And therefore, if that's the case, they need to continue to express themselves even if they've been diagnosed. Okay? The other thing um, I tell um, women, and this ties into the caregiving issue. As you said, women tend to be caregivers, frankly, some whether they want to or not. They're put in that role. At times, they're expected to do certain things. Um, they have to figure out what they can do and then learn to delegate. And that's the toughest thing for women. Women have a hard time delegating things out and saying, I don't do that, or I can't do that, or why don't you do this, et cetera. And I think if we learn to delegate more often, the stress would go down in a lot of things. Because as you said, you give up control then. And, mm -hmm. But giving up control means to decreasing stress, okay? And I guess my final point would be the multitasking thing. I just gave a talk on, a, a really, a, a one-hour talk on multitasking and what it does to the brain. You know, we tend to wear this multitasking badge of honor that we can multitask. And I think, you know, women in general, we do. We do multitask. We have to in many cases. But there comes a point when it's detrimental. It is not helping anything. If anything, there's too many open projects. There's too many open things in the air, and that's causing the confusion. The brain likes structure. The brain really does like structure. The brain functions well in structure. And when you multitask, the brain is, you know, basically not functioning at its best. So I tell, you know, again, my women, patients, their daughters, caregivers, this multitasking, you have to slow it down, three things at one time, if that, and you have got to really do things in a pace that you can handle. And then you will do it well. You will do it well. Yep. Yeah, that's, that is fascinating that they're not tracking gender, you know. And, um, oh, yeah. Sex, yeah. I mean, you just kind of, I mean, as an outsider looking in, I would think that would be like 101. You know, no. especially in, in this day and age, the way data can be collected. Um, right. in in input. So good for you for for really, you know, staying on yeah. top of that and shouting from the mountaintops. Appreciate that. Very much. <laughs> Thank <laughs> are, you. Are there, Thank you. Are there any questions that doctors should be asking women versus men that you think would help or that women should bring up to their doctors if they're not being asked um, to help flag their condition? Because I, I know, like uh, you mentioned with the hormones, I mean, for 10 years my mom was told, you know, oh, mm -hmm. it's just menopause, just menopause. Right. And then 10 years right. later, then they did significant tests, and it was like, oh, oops, 
she's got the mentality of a three-year-old, don't let her out of your sight. And and that whole 10 years, my mom knew it was more than that. Mm-hmm. She kept, right. she was afraid she was going to lose her job. She was kept a manual. I mean, she just, she knew at her core, which was so strange, because nobody talked really about Alzheimer's back then, 30 years ago. Um, I mean, it, you just didn't hear that word. Uh, and um, But she, she was just so sure that's what it right. was. Well, you know, I can tell you, and I I have heard that comment so many times, where, you know, I say, you know, the women are going through the healthcare system and they're going between the primary and the OB and the OB and the primary, and then maybe they'll go to cardiology and then they'll flip back to the OB, and then maybe they'll come to neurology. And, you know, that time window is about 16 months, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, I've tracked it. I've tracked it with my patients that have come, and it is so true that... Um, Women in general most likely will talk more to the OB, gynae, um, Mm -hmm. and probably internal medicine doctors. And so what I've done, and I've really reached out to my OB colleagues and basically have said whenever a woman is complaining about memory and you think it is not due to, you know, any kind of hormone shots or any, you know, changes in the regimen of what you're doing, send over and that that has been the comment. Send over and we will do an assessment and see what we're dealing with. And more I can tell you, more times than not, I have called the OB back and said this is early Alzheimer's. And the OB has been stunned. They have been stunned. Mm-hmm. And and of course they've said fine. They look now we know. Okay. <laughs> right. They look okay or they just say this is such a common complaint. Mm-hmm. You know, and so what I've done is raising awareness with the OBs. The other area that I've raised awareness where women talk much more uh, to their doctors, tends to be in cardiology. Um, We at Rush, uh, at the Alzheimer's Center, um, I have a cardiocognitive clinic that I started with the um, medical director of the Rush Heart Center for Women. Um, Tuesday afternoons, I'm doing cognitive screenings on her patients that she sees in the clinic because many of them have complained about memory issues and it's not clear whether it's a heart issue heart medication, or is this the beginning of an early dementia? And again, I I believe that what we have to do is with women, women have to talk to their doctors, and a lot of times if the doctor does not feel that there's anything to worry about, they can ask for another evaluation, and most likely it will go to neurology, okay? And Mm -hmm. I think they need to push it. I think they need to push the envelope on this because I've seen far too many cases where it was that 16-month window by the time they came to see me. And if you mm-hmm. look back in the history, it was there. And, you know, it's those kinds of things where the woman was told, well, it's all in your head or you're depressed or you're overstressed or all these things, which it could be, but you need to get an evaluation done. Yeah. yeah. The other one I think that would be critical to talk to, because I think a lot of women see uh, see these two are just the nurse practitioners. I, I think that there just mm-hmm. seem to be, I mean, I know if I can go see my nurse practitioner versus the doctor, that's where I'm at because she just takes more time mm-hmm. with me. I right. feel much more connected um, right. to her as well. And and so, right. you know, very, I mean, it's it's interesting that you even know who people are talking to and, and um, who they're more likely to open up to. And um, yeah. I, I, I think that's huge in and of itself because I, I hadn't ever heard anyone talking about that. It makes such sense um, mm-hmm. 
you know, in the process there. How about with regards to the caregiving role for an Alzheimer's patient? Does that impact women differently than men? And I know you had mentioned that there's, you know, more more women caregivers, um, mm-hmm. you know, than than men, um, mm-hmm. or that will admit it anyway. So, you know, that might be part right. of the problem too out there. Right. Well, you know, it's it's interesting, again, you know, in my experience with caregiving, I see men having more problems with caregiving when the wife has the disease. I see men, you know, men come and talk to me that I don't know what to do. Um, and therefore, I don't know what to do. I'm going to hand it over to my daughter to do this because I just don't know what to do. Um, mm-hmm. I've had men. I've had men tell me, um, you know, I have to fix this. Um, I mm-hmm. have to take, the, you know, that kind of take charge thing. And I've told them, you know, if you're going to get into a fight with an Alzheimer patient, you're always going to lose. So, you know, you're not mm-hmm. going to win. So you, you better think about your strategy, if you will, because it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, I think that women, it's interesting, when I speak to um, a woman who's a caregiver, what I've noticed is the women tend to ask about overall big picture how are we going to manage this? Is this person comfortable? How often should the visits be? What should we be doing? How can I help? How does she feel? How does he feel? This kind of kind of discussion, okay? Mm-hmm. When I speak to the men caregivers, the men are very most for the most part very bottom line. Okay, um, what medicine are we going to start? When can we start it? If this medicine doesn't work, what can we do? How long is this going to go? What stage is the person in, and can the person live at home, the loved one, whoever it is? So they're very, very into, at least my patients are very into, give me the facts, what are we going to do, Mm -hmm. um, and how do we do it? And I think, you know, I tell people, when you you go to the doctor, and if this is something, especially if you're a caregiver, and you're thinking this is something happening, you have to go with questions and direct it of what you want to get out of the visit. This is very important. I hear many mm-hmm. people saying, well, I went to the doctor and he didn't say anything. Well, he did say something. It wasn't exactly what you wanted to maybe have a discussion about. And I think with this disease, it gets very, people get very intimidated about where do we even start. And that, you know, I think in the beginning you asked me a question or we were talking about why is it not being diagnosed? Because, you know, I, my, you know, my experience with my colleagues, my doctor colleagues from all specialties, are saying to me, "We don't even know where to start. Where do you start with us?" Because mm-hmm. once you say the D word, dementia, and then you go to the A word, Alzheimer's, everything opens up. Then, I mean, the questions about living and, and stages and medicines and trials, and and you know, the average physician just doesn't have that time allotted in the schedule to do this. So a lot of mm-hmm. time. They are so overwhelmed. So that's why I ask patients, put a list together and let's go through that list and get the information at this point that you need right now. And you can say, well, I don't know what I need. Start looking, start reading, start educating yourself, and then get that question and then elaborate off of it. And I think that would relieve a lot of stress from people. Mm -hmm. I really do. Yeah, I I totally, totally agree with you on that. yeah, definitely. What what kind of suggestions do you have for women caregivers and and uh, Alzheimer's patients? Um, mm-hmm. I think I think one thing that women have to do 
And, you know, I have been talking already to, you know, the medical students that I mentor as medical students, saying, you know, you you as medical students need to understand this disease because it, you may not be seeing, depending on your specialty, what you go into, but this may happen at the house, you know, at your with your own family. And showing people how to manage the medical with the caregiving is really important because you have to manage both. You cannot just be a caregiver without understanding the medical behind of what's happening. So I think when it comes to caregiving, and especially for women, women have to learn to be more in a team and play as a team. And what what does that mean? It means that they have to start thinking in terms of this is what's happening. This is my loved one who has this. I need to assemble people around me who can help me with a service, um, whether it is um, providing supervision, whether it's, I think, again, I heard before I came on today, um, you know, doing grocery shopping. They have to learn to have team members, if you will, there to help them. And, and for the most part, women don't. They want to do the whole thing on their own. They may, re, they may turn to a daughter, but the daughter has to go to work. She can't do this by herself. Then the kids may come in and try to assemble a team, but the mother is uh, feeling um, embarrassed that she can't handle this on her own. So what I'm saying is that the team mentality has to come into play here, where who's on your team. And if you, if you don't have the family on your team, which I see a lot of, frankly, mm-hmm. I see a lot of family not being on the team, and I'm okay with it. And I tell people, be okay with it. It's okay. You need to then look for new team players. And you need Mm -hmm. to get new people on your team. And where does that come from? Social services, um, you know, sometimes uh, support groups, okay, other resources. Talk to the doctor. What other resources are out there? What do you know? Who can you point me to? Find a team. And I think that will help women tremendously and delegate out that task. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is going to help the most. Um, I think for the most part, men intuitively do this. They intuitively do this. And they they get people on that they think they need, that help them. And I'm not saying that they aren't caregiving, but they're caregiving in a different way. And frankly, I think we need to learn for how they caregive. Some people will say they don't caregive. That's not necessarily true. They do in a certain way, but they're very big on who do we need? What do we Mm -hmm. need to get done? And I think women need to think that way. I Mm -hmm. do. I yeah, I I definitely agree with you on that. I, I think that that's very, very important for us to expand. We don't, we just don't do a good job in terms no. of, of of connecting. You know, we think we're the only ones, um, right. or the only ones that we trust. <laughs> right. Know, to, to be right, but to you know, but one mm-hmm. thing though, you know, I have to say this um, to the listening audience. You know, remember, you know, women make up the majority in many cases of the workforce. And so what happens when this disease, this is something, again, I start very young when I talk about this. I'm talking to high school students about this already, about caregiving. Mm-hmm. If if we do not figure out how to manage caregiving and careers, if you will, mm-hmm. we are leaving in record numbers from the workforce. And that crosses everybody. That crosses people you know, in the labor force, that crosses our secretaries, that crosses the doctors, it crosses lawyers, it cro- everybody. You hear it all the time that people mm-hmm. are pulling back, and especially women. 
And so if we really have to focus on strategies to keep us in the workforce, and, you know, again, one of the areas I champion with the women, young physicians and residents, what do I need to do to keep you in the workforce? How can we help you to keep you in the workforce? Because what's happening is people are pulling out. And that is that's not just pulling out and for caregiving. That is an equity issue. That is a financial issue. That is affecting many, many, many different things. And I think it has to do with taking on too much, not being able to, to sit there and say, oh, my gosh, I'm, I'm going off the rails. I need to do something. I'm going to pull back. And I think that's the bigger discussion that has to happen um, as we talk also about caregiving. So my question always is to my women caregivers, especially the young ones, what do I need to do to keep you working? How can Mm -hmm. we help? And they are very receptive to that because working is also therapy for them in many cases. It really is. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, that makes makes a lot lot of sense. what do you have any last thoughts? I can't believe we we've got about mm-hmm. ten minutes left on the sure. on the show, and um, mm-hmm. I just want to give you enough time to be able to wrap up. And I also want to pull in Harry Urban, who actually is on the show um, with us, and Harry has dementia, to get mm-hmm. his thoughts about some of it, the comments that you've made as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, but any any last comments that you have or well. Yeah, you know, one comment I do want to bring up, uh, you know, as we talked about sex and gender differences, I think we start, we really need to start talking much more about, um, you know, racial and ethnic diversity of this disease. Uh, And I say that not just as a neurologist who sees people in clinics, but I'm in the field. I do home visits for our studies. I'm in in really um, Chicago's racially diverse neighborhoods. This disease impacts different cultures in some ways very differently, Okay. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a lot of stigma in, in some cultures about recognizing what's happening, uh, keeping the disease quiet, keeping it in the home, um, people not knowing where to get help for this disease. There's a lot of suffering going on in the houses where people just don't know where to turn, okay? And I also think, you know, not only raising awareness in a, a culturally sensitive way, but also, you know, getting people engaged into getting uh, treatment and coming into trials. Right now, we have less than 5% um, in our clinical trials are minority, okay? Mm-hmm. Which means, what it means is, is that whatever we end up finding out for medicines and drugs is going to be mostly tested with populations that were Caucasian. So the question then that comes, does this medicine work the same in different ethnic groups? And sometimes it may or may not. We know in, in, in heart medicines, they work differently, okay? Mm-hmm. We don't have those. We will not have those answers for Alzheimer's. And given the population in this country and the diversity in this country, we have really got to figure out how can we engage our minority populations to understand this disease, seek treatment, and participate in trials, and that is very, very important for everyone because it is a disease that crosses all nationalities, all socioeconomic groups, and we have got to really figure out how everyone can pull together and get engaged. And I guess that's my last comment for the, the listeners on this, is that the, the, the minority, the, the ethnic diversity in this disease, it's there. We just have to get more people engaged. Mm-hmm. I, I agree, and it's and in the movements, you know, it's it's 
it's gathering steam. Um, long mm-hmm. ways to go, but man, we've come a long, long ways in the last five years. Exactly, uh, exactly. Uh, unbelievable. I'm going to pull Harry Urban in and just mm-hmm. uh, see if he has any questions. Um, Harry is a man uh, living with uh, dementia uh, and has been for about 11 years out in Pennsylvania. And mm-hmm. um, Harry, any questions or thoughts you have? This this has been a very enlightening show for me. Uh, now, I say that because I speak out uh, about dementia awareness that's my passion in life. That's what I do. But I never, I never gave a thought to uh, the genders mm-hmm. of dementia. Uh, I did, I did raise the question. In fact, it's only been in the past, in the past week or two, I raised the question that it, it finally struck me that as many times as I speak, as many. Uh, support groups I go to, I see very little minorities in in the group, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and I'm shocked by that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't think about it before, but now that I'm thinking about it, I'm shocked by it. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm saying why? Because I know they suffer just as much as we do, right. and yeah. uh, I I think we have to do a better job of now raising awareness amongst the different ethnic groups, minority groups, and genders. Um, We're just not doing that. Exactly. You know, I'm I'm glad you brought that up as your observation, Harry, because that, you know, that's there. I mean, I can tell you when I've spoken to my, you know, my patients or when I'm in the field, I physically go in houses and I say, so talk to me. Would you go to a support group? Oh, no, 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 we don't do that. Or we won't go there, and it's it's again, it's that feeling uh, at times of shame. Um, this is occurring. We don't know how to handle this, or we have to keep this in the family. And I keep, you know, I keep saying, yes, I understand the family is important for support, but you know, you have to bring in other people. So I think, you know, we're we're moving forward. I can tell you, the numbers that you read about minorities and Alzheimer's disease just do me the favor. When you read a number and when you hear the number, just know it's an underestimation. It is underreported. It is an underestimation. Because out in the field, I can tell you people have this disease living out there, and they are not going in, they are not getting diagnosed, and they are not coming to these groups um, as we would like to see them come. Yeah. Okay. Anything else, Harry? No, that that's uh, I I think I think I just added more to my passions now. We have so much work yet to do. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, right. that, well that keep keep trooping, Harry. Keep going out there for me. Keep going well, out thank there. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, we'll bring this up to maybe on Dementia Chats on what you thought of this conversation when we do that next week, Harry. And oh, yes. uh, maybe we can get the other ones on board, too. That would be that would be wonderful. So um, thank you so much, Harry, for participating in the show. Your insights are always, uh, always very interesting. And Dr. Uh, Neelam Agar, I'm going to say it wrong again. I don't know why. You know, 
You can just say Dr. A. Yeah, you can say Dr. A. That's what everybody says. Dr. A. (laughs) It's just like this is not that tough of a name. Uh, But um, I think when I'm I'm wanting to say it right, then I I screw it up. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) When I I make a point of it. Anyways, I appreciate you being on the show. Uh, This is a fascinating conversation and um, wonderful information for people to have. Um, And, again, people can go to don'tforgetalzheimers.com, just as it sounds. Uh, No apostrophe, though. Uh, www.don'tforgetalzheimers.com. Or you can go to alzheimerschicago.com to be able to get more information on Alzheimer's clinical trials. Um, it's a very um, easy web page to maneuver. There's a, a, a survey that you can take to find out if you qualify or not um, very simply. And so, um, again, thank you both so much for being being with us today and, and all you're doing to change the face of Alzheimer's disease. Um, you have a great week. And okay. um, I, I would love to have you back on the show another time. You just were really just full of such wonderful information. Really appreciate it. Oh well, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. Oh. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Um, to wrap up the show, I just want to again uh, give a shout out to um, Pieces of the Past Puzzles, who was our first guest, um, or you can go to Portrait Puzzles as well. And again, uh, you know, check out that clinical trial at don't don't forget alzheimer's dot com. Uh, you know, we, we're never going to find a cure if we don't have people step up to the plate on this. And it's just such an important important piece. You really have the chance to to help um, families battle this disease uh, by participating in reshaping uh, Alzheimer's treatments, you know, and you can do this um, at a no-cost participation. And uh, so, again, check out, again, uh, don't forget uh, alzheimers.com. Uh, next show is going to be next week. We're going to have Lori Shearer with us with Dementia Days, who is living with dementia. She's going to have some great insights. I have just heard raves about her, and I actually can't wait to actually uh, have her on the show and talk. And um, if you haven't read the article by uh, Truthful Living Kindness um, on the blog, she she talks about time and energy that is consumed when you have dementia symptoms, um, how overwhelming things can be. And um, last, I just want to give a shout out to, again, uh, join us on the Purple Angel Project. You can find that on our About page on alzheimerspeaks.com. Or check out uh, Healthstar Home Health. If you're going to be in Minnesota the end of August, beginning of September, make sure you check them out at the Safe Fair. Some really exciting things are going to be launched at that time. So we will see you next week. In the meantime, um, just have a, a blessed time. Talk to you soon. Bye now. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey, everybody, Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. 
Now, this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what could be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire, become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurpose on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.